we are in, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 69 as we open God's Word together. Uh, Ken just read from Psalm 69. If you want to go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible but you want to follow along, we have Bibles under the seats around you. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word to take home with you. So if you're carrying one of those things out of here, nobody's going to tackle you or uh, interrogate you on why you're taking one of the church's Bibles. That's yours. Take it. Uh, so we are on the fourth Sunday of the Advent season, which means this is the Sunday before Christmas, the last Sunday before Christmas. And we talked last week about how that word Advent means arrival. And so we're celebrating the arrival of Christ at Christmas season. This year for our Advent series, we were reminding one another of all the reasons that we have in Christ to rejoice, to celebrate in what the arrival of Christ means to us. And despite having, um, to put it lightly, a difficult or tumultuous year, um, we're, we're ending our year by taking our focus off of the difficulties of the year and placing our focus on Christ, our reason for rejoicing. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the redemption of Jesus and what that really means for each of our lives and how God has even been redeeming us through this year. Um, Just a couple of things. I want to start by um, reading a couple of tweets um, that that were meant to describe the way 2020 has gone. This was part of an article entitled 2020 Tweets That Say It All. Uh, The first one is this. uh, Sorry I didn't respond to your email in a timely fashion. I literally cannot tell days apart anymore, and I thought today was two weeks ago. Feels like quarantine, doesn't it? How it started. I'm going to write a novel during quarantine. How it's going so far? I have forgotten how to read. And then this last one. None of your emails are finding me well. Decent descriptions on the year we've had so far, and I'm saying that for a couple reasons. One, um, the idea of social media has bridged the gap in some ways between what you might consider or what previously would have been a personal thought, right, a private thought in your own mind versus what you publish in the world, right? And and we, we joke because not everybody realizes that when you put something on social media, you're publishing it to the world, grandmas and grandpas. And so, like, in a lot of ways... The things that we're expressing, social media has given us courage uh, to be more courageous, maybe even more confrontational, uh, or maybe even more personal and vulnerable as we describe the situations of our days. Now, the first four verses of Psalm 69 that Ken read could have easily been 2020 tweets. Let me read the first four verses again. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number, more in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. Now the Psalms uh, come to us, first of all, as personal, maybe journal entries. So this is David uh, in a personal and private time with the Lord describing his scenario. And after writing this song, it actually becomes something that the people of God would sing. 
because so much of what David was writing would, would resonate with other people in their struggles, but not just the, not just the empathy of, of being able to relate to the struggles, but where David points his own heart to for hope, he's pointing the nation of Israel to for hope. And so as David begins to describe the difficulties of his situation, he uses this kind of word picture that's really vivid, isn't it? This idea of like being surrounded by floodwaters that are now up to his neck, right? Feeling the desperation of, of needing help and help. Like if, if God doesn't help soon, he's gonna drown. Like that I, I've had it up to here. Moms, you know that one, right? <laughs> like, and many of us feel that way. Like I've had it up to here. But, but more than that, it's more than just floodwaters. He goes on to describe it like being in a mire. That's like a boggy, swampy place with mud and, and entanglement and things that are there. So it's not like he can just tread water while the water's rising around him. Like he can't even get a foothold in the midst of his circumstances. So feels like he's about to drown and can do nothing about it. Now, the specific details of his situation, he outlines here by saying this, um, more in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. He felt like the world was against him. Everybody hated him. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. And then his last sentiment here in verse four, what I did not steal must I now restore. Why is it my burden, my fault to fix things that I didn't break? Why, why am I having to repay things that I didn't steal? And so this is the desperation of David's situation here as he cries out to the Lord. He even describes it as being at a place where his throat is dry and he is weary from crying. Have you ever been there? Like you just cried until you just can't cry anymore. Your throat hurts. You're like, I just don't have any emotional bandwidth left. Can't even think about it anymore. And this is where he, at, where he is. This is the desperation of his situation. Now, if he just stopped here, he would, he would sound like a 2020 victim. Oh, the world's against me. Everything in the world's going wrong. Everything is the fault of somebody else. But look at what he says in verse five. Not only is everything broken on the outside, look at verse five. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. And so instead of taking on the victim identity of all the pain I'm experiencing is everybody else's fault, David says, wait a second, I've got a hand in this too. Some of the reason why I'm suffering right now is my own sin. God, you know the folly of my heart. You know the wickedness within. And so this isn't just everybody else's fault. I am to blame as well. And so this will cue up David's prayer for God's rescue. Verse 13 is where we'll go next. So David begins to, to petition the Lord for things. He shifts his lamenting to praying for God to specifically act. So he begins in verse 13, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. So really, before he gets to the list of things he's going to ask for, he lays out what, essentially what he's counting on, counting on to compel the Lord to act. So in other words, he's not saying, this situation's getting really hard, God. You're, you're obligated to act. You're obligated to not let your people go through such hard times. Because things are so hard, you need to act here. He's not saying that. 
Nor is he saying, God, remember me, the man after your own heart. Remember how faithful I've led the people of Israel. Remember all I've done for you, so therefore act. No, what is he, what is he leaning on? He's leaning, first of all, the, the timetable of the Lord. Did you catch that? This is gonna be so important. Listen to what he, he says again. As for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. Acceptable to whom? The Lord. God, in your time, answer my prayers. According to your timetable, oh God, answer me. But not only that, look at what he says. Answer me according to what? The abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your serving faithfulness. He's saying, God, based on who you are, I want you to act in my life. Not based on how difficult things are, not based on how awesome I've been as one of the the leaders of your people, but I want you to, to act according to who you are, your character. That's really important. God loves you immensely. Listen to this. But not because you are immensely lovable. Are you with me? He loves you immensely because he is an immense lover. Are you with me? It's his character. It's who he is. So David is, he's, he's, he's essentially saying, God, I need you to act based on who you are, not based on what I deserve, not based on how difficult my circumstances are. I need you to act based on who you are. According to your timetable and according to your character, God, answer my prayers. Now, verse 14, he's going to begin to ask for things, and it's no surprise where he's gonna start. He starts with these words, deliver me rescue me. Deliver me from the sinking mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. And so really this deliverance is twofold. It's one is the idea of get me out of this mess, rescue me. But it's not only that, it's not only the idea of rescue me, it's also the idea of sustain me. If this lasts for a while, Give me what I need to keep my head above water, oh God. So it's not just rescue me or nothing. It's, it's rescue me according to your timetable. But while I'm in this mire, as long as your timetable would have me in these difficulties, give me what I need to keep my head above water because I can't sustain myself. I can't tread water here. I can't keep my head above water. Deliver me. Listen, if all we, we talked about this last week, if our only hope is for difficult things to come to an end, we completely miss out in the purpose of today, the purpose in the pain, God's plans and his will unfolding in our lives in difficult situations. I was actually talking to a gentleman this past week about the difficulties we face in life, and he was sharing his story with me, looking back over his life. And he said, you know, as I look back, I began to try to figure out why this happened and why that happened. And, and, and he said, you know, in this situation, I think this is what God was doing. In this situation, this is what God was doing. I said, well, here's what we do know. First of all, anything we can recognize as God moving is like a drop in the bucket of what God was doing. Right? It's just one of the things God was doing. But I said, here's what we do know in Christ. Every time God works in our lives, he is always doing this. He's always conforming us into the image of his son, Romans chapter 8. So regardless of what else God is doing, he's always doing that in your life. 
through, through good times and bad, through easy times and hard times, especially in the difficulties. He's conforming you as a son and daughter into the image of his son. He's always doing that. So as you go through difficult times, you can't see all the reasons why, and you can't figure out, why is this happening? Why am I going? Why is this still here? We know this. God is using that difficult situation to conform you into the image of his son. And so it is twofold. Both God, rescue me from this, but also sustain me. Now, everything that David is gonna ask for after this point in the prayer are gonna have very little to do with God removing him from the difficulties. Everything he's gonna ask for going forward, God can do even if David stays in these difficult situations. So look at what he says next. Verse 16, answer me, O Lord. For your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant. For I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Now, I don't know if you noticed or not. Everything else, what he asked for first, deliver me, was according to whose timetable? The Lord's. And now he's saying, hey, God, I need you to do this immediately. So what I'm asking for, make haste. I need it today. Well, I think it's really important to understand what this word means, answer me. If we just translate in English, it almost sounds like um, David's telling God, I need you to obey me. Do what I tell you. Answer me. That's not at all what he's saying. So this word, answer me, it's the idea of like a, a communal relationship where he's saying to God, I need you to hear me, but I also need you to speak to me. Right? So he's saying like, God, I need to hear your voice so that I can know that you've heard mine. You ever been there? Like, you feel like, I don't know if God's hearing me. My prayers are hitting the ceiling. He's saying, answer me. Speak to me, God, so that I know that you're hearing my plea and my cry for help. God, answer me. Again, not according to me being one of your favorites, not according to how all the great things I've done in life, but according to what? Who you are. Your steadfast love and abundant mercy. In verse 18, he asks for something else. He says, draw near to my soul. So even if this situation doesn't come to an end today, God, I need you to answer me. Make haste. I need to hear from you today. The second thing he says is what? Draw near to my soul. That's more than draw near to my circumstances, right? If we ask God to draw near to our circumstances, all we're asking him to do is to fix things, right? Chase my enemies away. Go after all my false accusers. Go after all the people who are stealing stuff and blaming it on me. But he's not asking for that. He's, draw, he's saying, God, draw near to what? To my soul. Like God can do that even in the mire. He can do that even in the suffering and the difficulties. And this is really the essence of what Christmas is, right? Like Matthew 1, 23, the word is this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, the God who draws near, the God who comes near. And I think to find the full kind of meaning of what David is praying for, we have to look at the verse before it, verse 17, when he says this, he says what? Hide not your face from your servant. That's the concept of, of being embarrassed by somebody, so you turn away. Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right, in the grocery store? <laughs> You're like... I don't know whose kid that is. <laughs> right, and they come to the speaker, clean up on aisle eight, and you're like, ah. You know what I'm talking about, right? That moment where like, your kiddos do something, you're like, I'm just so embarrassed. Now, 
We might think of God that way. We make such a mess of our lives. We do so many ridiculous, foolish things that he would hide his face from us in embarrassment because that's the way our heart feels. But parents, you also know that feeling of looking at one of your children and saying, you know what? You're mine. I love you. And I'm not embarrassed. Though the world may look at you with the judgmental eyes right now, you're my child and I will not turn my back on you. That's the description of what he's praying for. God, don't turn your face from me. You have tons of reasons to be embarrassed by my life, my actions, my words. Tons of reasons to turn your face from me. But oh God, instead of that, will you draw near to my soul? Will you come to me like a loving parent who wraps his arms around me rather than abandon me? Draw near to my soul. In verse 18, as we continue, redeem me, ransom me, because of my enemies. Now these two words, redeem and ransom, are very closely related, but they're actually two different concepts. The redeeming he's asking for is, is the work God does while he's still in the mire. The ransom is the means by which he is delivered from it, okay? So let's talk for a minute about this idea of redemption. So I was I'll just word it this way. I was talking with somebody recently, actually a young lady in our church. We were talking about why God allows bad things to happen and just looking at the big picture of the Bible. Like if God's um, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, then why did he allow the, the serpent into the garden temptation and sin? And like, wouldn't it have been better just to leave Adam and Eve as innocent, pristine, you know, un, un, unchanged by sin, just in the garden, right? And you're like, well, that makes sense. Why didn't God do that? That would have been a, a good thing, right? And, and so my first response when questions like that come or, or it starts somewhere like this, like there's a difference between good and better, okay? So think about creation, Genesis 1 and 2, right? God creates the world, the universe, and you and I in it. And at the end of each day, he declares that it is good, and after the creation of, of, of man and woman, he says it's very good. So the condition of God's creation was good. So the question is, why did God allow something in to make it less than good? As we think about this concept of redeeming, we tend to think of making something new again or good again, making it what it used to be. So as I think through why God allows things and why essentially he allowed sin into the world, um, I, I think of it this two ways. One is there is, a, there is a part of God's character that we only know because we need it. Forgiveness of sins, restoration, healing, right? Love. These are things we know about God because we need those things. Without the fall, without brokenness, right? We wouldn't know that, that portion of God's character. Now, more than that though, is this idea that through God's redemption, it's more than just making something new again. So when we think about like restoring an old car, like the best restoration job would take an old car and, and take it back to new again, right? Like it was when it was new. But the idea of God's redemption in the scriptures is not that he just makes things new again, it's actually that he makes things better than new. Right, so yes, it would have been a good thing for God to, to, to protect Adam and Eve in the garden, even just knowing a portion of God's character there to, to, to leave them as they were would have been good. But the idea of redemption is that God takes what was good, allows it to be broken so that he can redeem it to better than good. 
One of my favorite um, Christian songwriters, songwriters in general, um, Andrew Peterson has a song entitled, Don't You Want to Thank Someone? And all throughout this song, he's talking about the brokenness and the fallenness in the world, but he is also mentioning little hints of God's goodness that you see even in the midst of our brokenness, like um, just like the face of a newborn baby, right? The, there's these little special moments. You see these little hints of goodness still kind of left in creation, although a majority of creation is fractured and, and broken. But there's a line in his song that I wanted to read, and, and it goes like this. As he's thinking about why God allowed this good world, this good creation to be broken, only to have to redeem it, he says this. Maybe it's a better thing, a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and then redeemed by love. See, that's the story of the Bible. The fall didn't happen because God didn't see it coming. So why did God allow it to happen? The story of redemption would say that God allowed the fall to happen, that he might allow the world to be broken and then redeem it by love. That's not just the theme of the Bible, like that's the theme of our lives. Some of you know little pieces of my own personal story. Dad went to prison when I was five, raised by a single mom, siblings in like four different states. Alcoholism, drug addiction, rampant throughout my family tree, my genetic pool, if you will. So you look at somebody like me and go, well, he's destined to repeat the sins of his father. You know, he's destined to be a deadbeat dad and walk out on his wife and family and, like, and repeat all these same mistakes. But as I come to know, came to know Christ as my savior at the age of 15, he began to redeem, to make better than just new, like better than new. And, and I would talk about this oftentimes in like marriage counseling um, where a couple comes in, they're like, yeah, we're really struggling right now. We just want things to go back to the way they were. And I always say, no, you don't. Because if it goes back to the way it was, you'll be back here again. You need something better than what you had. Well, I just want my old husband back again. No, you don't. You want something better than your old husband. See, that's the biblical concept of redemption, to, make, to be made better than new. And so David is praying for something that he can have even in the mire. God, redeem me. Take all of this pain, all this suffering, all this evil, and use it for my good. It's the story of Joseph, and I refer to this often. When Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, I mean, it's one thing for siblings to pick on each other, uh, but these jokers actually took him and sold him to a band of gypsies into slavery. As the story unfolds through the book of Genesis, you get to Genesis 50, the table has turned. Now the brothers are without, they're in a time of famine. They're starving. They come to Joseph. They're begging him not only for food, but for forgiveness. <laughs> Good thing, right? Just ask me for food. You, and they say, God, Joseph, please forgive us. Please you know, forgive us for all that we did against you. And Joseph first says, well, why are you asking me for forgiveness? Am I in the place of God? And then the second thing he says is this, as for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good. Same series of events. He's not talking about two different storylines. One storyline. And the people in Joseph's storyline meant a lot of things for evil against him. And at the same time, God was taking those intentions and laying his intentions on top of it and turning it for Joseph's good. God was superintending his plan for Joseph on top of the evil plans of his brother. And if you read the story, it's happening over and over again, isn't it? Like, God's plans just can't be thwarted. And so we see in, through Joseph's life, our own story as well, where God redeems our lives. He takes what is intended for evil towards you and from you. You with me? Like, 
towards you is what the rest of the world does towards you. That was the beginning of his prayer. Look at what everybody's doing against me. God takes that evil, turns it for good. But then uh, David also says, but wait, I've got sin in my heart too. I've got evil in my heart too. Take that and turn it into good. This is the story of redemption in our lives. This is what God can do in David's life, even in the mire, even as the floodwaters rise. Redeem me. And then this next word is ransom me. And in its simplest form, it simply means to make a payment for something, to set it free. Like if a kidnapper is holding somebody, you pay a ransom to set them free. And that's what David's praying for. Set me free. Ransom me. And what's so powerful about David's prayer here is this. When God rescues us, he doesn't come alongside us, throw us a rope, and pull us out of our situation. Instead, when God rescues us, he wades out into the mire, the place where we are hopeless and sinking, and he overcomes the mire to rescue us. Like, that's what the cross is about. Jesus is born into the world to be a ransom payment for our souls. He journeys to the cross to pay that ransom price. And then he goes to the grave, wading out into the mires of our hopelessness to overcome sin and death, to overcome the mire, right? He doesn't throw you a rope. He throws you his arms. He rescues you with his own hands as he pulls us up out of the desperation of our situation. And so through David's prayer, we see that, that we, what we already have in Christ is enough to rejoice. Yes, we want to be rescued from difficult situations, deliver us, right? But everything else he prays for, we have. Sustain me. And we have that. Answer me, meaning speak to me. Let me hear your voice so that I know you can hear mine. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. And he has already paid that ransom price for you and for me. And we already have that in Christ. So we might think that, well, David's going to queue up this prayer and then, and then send it off to God and then wait. And if God answers, then he will be somebody who will rejoice. But look at verse 30 with me. I will praise the name of God with a song. What he's saying is, this song is done, and I'm already praising. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. 34, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. Before God does anything to answer my prayers, I will rejoice. What I already have in Christ is enough. We'll go back to the song we just sang. Is he worthy? Or are you a person who says, well, you know what? If he'll fix my life, yes, he's worthy. Once he answers my prayers, yep, then he's worthy. Let me ask you this. Is God worthy to be praised, to be worshiped, to be exalted, whether he does anything to rescue you from your situation or not? Let me word it this way. Has God, through Christ, already done enough to render himself worthy to you for our rejoicing? The answer is yes. Yes. Is he worthy? He is. I want to end with this. So we see in Psalm 69, David is praying for these things in the midst of his distress. He's not looking back in hindsight, like he's in the middle of it. I mean, not only that, 
He's not simply just praying, God, fix my situation so I can be happy again. Take me back to, to, to 2019 again. Instead, what he's saying is this. God, in the midst of my suffering, I want you to redeem me. I want you to work on me. I want you to be near to me. And this is the essence of Christmas, isn't it? Aren't we celebrating the advent, the arrival of God who draws near? And it wasn't that he just drew near in Bethlehem. Like he's drawing near to us today. So Christmas really is the celebration of a God who draws near to us. I want to end with a few questions for you to think about, some questions for reflection and maybe even questions for you to think about for discussion later on with your friends or family. Let me just ask these questions and let you start thinking about how God may be speaking to you today. First of all, what difficult circumstance um, from this year have you prayed for God to change but hasn't changed yet? What could be personal, something like really close to you or something maybe at a distance, but what have you been praying for that God hasn't changed yet? Then let me ask you this, how has God sustained you even without changing the situation? Where can you look back and see the hints of the hand of God holding you up, keeping you above the water, keeping you from drowning, keeping you from dying, keeping you from being driven to despair? Let me ask you this question. What means more to you, God's presence or his rescue? God's presence or his rescue? See, we can have God's presence even without the rescue. And then this last question is this. Do you personally believe that God is able to redeem the suffering in your life? I don't mean just make it go away. I don't even mean just make it new again or take you back to who you were before then. What I mean is make it better than new. Do you believe in a God who can redeem every ounce of pain? Do you believe that God is able to redeem your most difficult circumstances to bring about a greater good, a better good in your life? If not, maybe you don't have reasons to rejoice. But our reasons for rejoice is that the God of the Bible can take our most painful moments and turn them and redeem them for our good. And that's the God we rejoice in. I wanna, I wanna pray for us now as we think about how God may be speaking to each one of us. If you're on, watching us online in your own home, I invite you to pray with us now. So the prayer I'm gonna pray is gonna be really twofold. It's one for each of us individually, but I'm also gonna pray over our church. The things we've talked about today would not only be identity markers in each of our lives, but would be the way that the community around us sees Solid Rock Church. Let's pray together, and, uh, and then we'll respond. So, Father, we thank you for this powerful reminder from Psalm 69. God, as David begins the psalm, each one of us can relate on some level to feeling the desperation of, of difficult times, difficult situations. God, each one of us has been up to our kind of our emotional necks, if you will, this year, whether that's anxiety or frustration or uh, whatever the emotion is, God. Each of us, God, has felt the weight and the pressure of the fallen world this year. We're so thankful, God, that what you've given us in Christ is enough. 
And so, God, I'm praying that for each individual person here, God, that we would take time to think about what that means for our lives. That, Father, our suffering is not without purpose. Father, our hardships um, are, are not random. And you take what is intended for evil against us, and, Father, you intend it for good. And so we, we cling to that today, that truth. And, Father, we do pray that for our church, that as we become known in this community, that we would be known as more than just a, a church with a big building or a church with, with friendly people, but that when people think of Solid Rock Church, they would, they would see us as a people who rejoice even when things are hard. And that through that rejoicing, that people would be drawn to you, God. And so, Father, now I pray your spirit would move, God, through our hearts. Um, God, we pray now as we move into a time of baptism that you would be glorified, and we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.